What up all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 132 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Multi in Phong Nha, Vietnam. He is the owner and operator of The Pepper House. Multi is a self-described immigrant. He does not appreciate the label of expat, but Multi is one of the individuals that I can say, looking back on the people I've met around the world from the start of my travels when I was 18 to now, like Dale Dagger, episode four, Brian Friedrichs, episode five, and Don Gomez, episode seven, is basically the reason I started Misfits and Rejects. He's one of those magical characters you meet in these villages in the most backward places in the world that really captures the imagination of anybody who gets to sit down with him, share a drink, share a smoke, share a conversation. He's just multi, and he's not apologetic for who he is, what he wants out of life. There is an underlying goodness that runs through multi at the foundation. Now, I think multi would agree that he's neither the best human being on earth, but he's not the worst either. He's just who he is, and he's not apologetic for what he says or his actions. Sure, he's probably made some bad decisions in his life, but again, he accepts those decisions, takes responsibility for them or not, and either way, he's okay with that. And I hope throughout this episode, you kind of get a feeling for Multi and his character and his personality and, and maybe feel what makes him so special and unique. And stay tuned all the way to the end because how we wrap it up and, and his ending quote is absolutely just priceless and words to live by. If you're a first-time listener, please do me the honor, pull out your phone, hit the subscribe button, and if you feel so inclined after this episode, leaving a comment and rating it really helps me out. I sure would appreciate it. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Multi. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I am joined by multi gentlemen here in Feng Ya. Interesting gentleman, somebody I've got to have a few uh, rice wines with, shoot the shit. Just another beautiful fixture here on the land of Feng Ya that I thought would be a cool story to come on and share. So, Multi, welcome to the show, dude. Ah, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, right as the, the your neighbor comes up the road with his uh, farming equipment. You live in a rice paddy, dude. Well, not um, in a rice paddy, but alongside one. <laughs> I'm right beside a rice paddy. It's had, amazing, yeah. We had a nice conversation prior to this episode of just talking about what it means to be a rice farmer here in Phong Ya. Can you kind of talk to the audience about like your neighbors and, and the significance of being a rice farmer in Phong Ya? Well, yeah, right. Well, already we've got it. Um, when you've said rice farmer, what happens there is we've got all those associations with farmer and farming being a job an occupation, something you do. These guys, um, it's who they are. It's not what they do. So the rice farmer, they it's, yeah, as they, one of the old men says to me, um, old mister, what's his name? Ming. Ming says to me that, uh, yeah, rice farming is not what we do. It's what we are. So the rice is not what they grow. It's actually part of them. Uh, they are rice. So you can notice it here with the people too. As the rice crop grows, the people seem to grow as well. So um, with the seasons changing and winter happening, the people seem to grey out a bit and drop off a bit. And then when the plants come on and the plants grow, the people seem to grow as well. So um, there's that real connection. It's a real intricate part of their lives. And the, they've been farming this rice for so long that it was, originally it was just growing wild in the little rivers and creeks that were running by their houses. This is generations ago before they've industrialised it. But yeah, it was just 
part of their life, part of who they are. Yeah, you were saying earlier how you know their neighbor comments on how, as Western people, we do jobs that we don't like, and and why would we do a job that we don't like? Where he gets to do a job that he loves every day, and that makes so much more sense to him. Yeah, he had absolutely no comprehension why you would spend your life doing something that you wanted to stop doing. It was beyond him. Now, for us to go over to his house, he lives in, it's not a stick house, it's a traditional Vietnamese timber house. So he's standing, he's got a bare earth floor, he's got um, timber walls going two-thirds of the way up, it's open around the top, and his wardrobe is a nail driven into the wall, and he's got a spare pair of shorts and a spare shirt hanging on it, and that's all he owns in the house got his kitchen, got his bed, and um, yeah, they just have, he couldn't comprehend why you would spend your life doing something you wanted to stop doing. Um, How many jobs did you have in your life that you wanted to stop doing? Well, I've kind of got a two-year attention span. So I've been living here in Vietnam over eight years now. So when I'd been here two years, I thought I'd pack up and go. Um, so, yeah, I've had a lot of jobs. But as a kid, I, or, I thought that my the job my dad had was a job he'd had forever. So it wasn't until I was older that I realised my old man had had a few different jobs over his life. So... Um, yeah, I thought it was just one of those things where you left school, you went to your job, and then you retired and finished. So when I was little, I was, um, I figured two years is enough. You're either gonna achieve what you set out to do, or you're gonna be in a rut. And, um, uh, some of my jobs I stopped, you wake up, the alarm, Hey, Vivezuela. The um, alarm goes off. You wake up. You're in the shower. Sometimes I've been in the shower crying and um, run work up and told them I'm not coming. So I've because it's actually, that miserable. I've quit a couple of jobs like that. Yeah. Um, Were you pressured into trying to be something like specific as? Growing up, did your parents say that you had to become a lawyer, accountant, or something well, like this? Well, being I'm well, I'm in my fifties now. I'll be fifty-two soon. Um, what my dad did, I've read some stuff about this recently uh, about how to acquire wealth or happiness or whatever you're doing. Um, what my dad taught me was that you sold your time for money so you'd get paid an hourly rate and if you wanted to make more money you get paid a higher hourly rate so I didn't come from a background where someone would tell you you can do whatever you want or do what you want that makes you happy and then monetize that which is what I've found kind of works for me but, um, yeah, I came from somewhere where it was a very narrow focus and it, was about, it wasn't about starting anything yourself. It was just about going and getting a job and selling your time on an hourly rate. So that's basically the... What was your first like entrepreneurial endeavor? I mean, considering it sounds like you weren't groomed to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, well, I... We, okay, Australia, I don't know. We do school. I don't know how weird it is. Uh, you, back in the day, you used to be able to go to high school and you'd do four years of high school. And then if you were going to be a tradesman, off you'd go out into the world. Then there was two more years of high school you could do. And if you did those two years, that'd send you off to university or college. Um, and then you're off doing one of those well-paid jobs. Um, the entrepreneurial thing was 
never really given to me as an option. It just wasn't something that I was aware of. I did find out later on in life that there was quite a few successful companies in Australia that um, my father had been offered the in on. So his friends have come up to him, hey, dude, give me $500, we can go into business. And there's a few multi-million dollar companies in it. One of them was a famous piggery owned by one of our prime ministers. And my dad was allowed in on that, on the ground level. And he took the opportunity? No, never. None of them. So there's been half a dozen of them. And my dad at every point just said no. Um, what do you think, what, out of fear, just around not understanding the full business model? or um, Just that it'd be from, I don't know, what he was told mm-hmm. when he was little. Um, he just didn't see it as something that was available to him. And then later on in life, he didn't regret that he didn't go and do that. Mm-hmm. It was just, I don't know who he was. And back then, those guys also, now, because of the internet, we've got the world in our pocket, all the knowledge of the world's in your pocket. Those guys back then, even me when I was little, we didn't have that. You'd have to um, actually go out and talk to people or read a book to learn something. Today, any questions, just ask Siri. So I think it's... We can be harsh to judge them, but they did get stuck in little boxes, but they had no idea that they could get out of them and no way of learning how to. How did you break out then? Because, I mean, in previous conversations that we've had, I mean, you obviously are a traveler. You've had some pretty creative ways of making money around the world through various stints and counterfeiting, I think you said at one point. (laughs) Yeah, I said that before the microphone was on. (laughs) Um, Okay, for me, okay, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I just went all the way through school, finished that year 12 thing, and then um, my parents said to me, you're going to university, and I went, well, no. I said, I didn't really want to be at school. And they said, well, you better get a job. So I applied for one job. And then, um, unfortunately, I got the job. So I went and worked in a bank. Um, now, being a male working in a bank, you get promoted way quicker than the girls do. So... Um, because invariably the girls are only there. In Australia, you get a cheap mortgage rate if you work there. So what's going on with all the girls? They get married, they stay at work, get the cheap mortgage rate, and then um, when their mortgage is paid off, they leave the bank. So they weren't getting the promotion. I was. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose that was my life in the bank. But what, you, do you have an aptitude for math? Like, was this like, what, what kind of stuff were you doing at the bank? Well, I, well, by the, I was only, well, I got a two year attention span. So in the two years I was there, I ended up being assistant to the loan officer. Now there was girls that had been working there 15 years that were tellers. I started as a clerk, went to a teller, went to head teller and then went to assistant to the loans officer. So I was third in rank at the branch. There was two men above me, me, and then all the girls were below me. Um, But for me, the kicker on that one was winter. I turned up to work one morning, it was dark, at the, the bank shuts at four o'clock, but you're not allowed to leave until everything balances. So, um, We'd there for a couple of hours. We walk outside and it was dark again. So I'd turned up at work in the dark and then I'd left work and it was dark again. And I was sitting in the car and I thought, fuck, these people have stolen my whole day. 
my whole life is gone. So, um, yeah, that was the day I quit the band. And did you hit the road with the money you saved, or what was your um, first big trip out of Australia? No, they, okay, there was no money there. That was the bank. I'm moving so much money. I stood one day outside the bank. I'm on the pavement sidewalk, uh, standing out on the footpath with this old guy. He had, um, he was in an iron lung when he was a kid. He couldn't walk real well. So me and him are standing out the front. We're waiting for the armor guard truck to turn up and pick the money up. We had $9 million cash sitting in two bags. This guy had been in an iron lung. He could barely walk. At no point did it occur to me to pick these two bags up and leave. Now, every Wednesday at lunchtime, they'd put $110 in my account. That was my weekly pay. So, um, yeah, I didn't notice it was money. The only money I was really dealing with was my $110. The rest of it wasn't really money. It was just work. What were you doing? Were you just going to the pub and spending it all? Or were you trying to save it to get out of the country? Or? No, going to the pub. Yeah. Yeah, 18. Go and drink. Um, what I also did was, um, this is back when my dad's got me, whatever I told you about it. He's um, said, right, oh, you want to earn more money? Um go and do shift work. So I went and became a train driver. Now, yeah, that earned me a lot of money. So while everyone's in the pub on, well, we were little, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, drinking, I was off at work driving trains, getting paid double time. Um, when I'm ready to go to the pub, it's, you know, I finish work at 9 a.m. Tuesday. Well, there's no one ready to go to the pub, so there's no way to go and spend the money. So I earn a great big whack of money doing that. And um, so, yeah, I was there for two years and um, told those guys I wanted a year off to go on holidays because I had all that money sitting there. Yeah, the boss told me he wouldn't give me time off without pay. So um, I handed in my resignation. He called me in, took the resignation letter and ripped it up and, and gave me my year off without pay. So um, that was my first overseas trip. Where'd you go? Well, being Australian back in those days, the big calling point was England. Being convicts or whatever we were, that seemed to be the place to go. You'd save up and go to England. Did you have relatives still there, like from one side of the family? No, 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 no relatives there. Um, our family actually came. We were convicts, so we came from Ireland. But, um, yeah, we've got no, no family there that we know of. One of my old aunties did all the old um, ancestry heraldry thing back in the day. Um, now you can just do it online in 20 minutes, but back then it would take years. You'd have to write letters. You'd have to get people to go and check through parish records and stuff. So she did all of that and got all our family history worked out. But no, we didn't have any connection back there. So what, you land with this chunk of change? Plan to spend a year in England doing what? Like in a hostel or a hotel? Or oh, okay. I've... What did I do? Oh, this is back in the day when money went further. Um, okay, budget. Yeah, you're out, you're backpacking, whatever. I write my budget out and I've got enough money for a three-month holiday. So I looked at and I thought, that's not long enough. So I looked at my budget and crossed beer off. Well, then I had enough money for a six-month holiday. I thought, right, oh, that'll do. So off I went on the holiday and um, I called into Thailand and India on the way to England and um, somewhere through it, I was somewhere, 
the I'd taken out medical insurance before I left. Um, my medical insurance ran out. So I had a letter sent to me that um, said I needed to pay $500 medical insurance. Well, I had a look in my money belt and I had $500 left. So it was decision time. So I could either pay the medical insurance and have no money and go home or just wing it. So um, I winged it. That was the last... That was... 1989. So that was the last time I had medical insurance. So, um. So you went to England via, what did you say, India and where else? Thailand. Thailand. Thailand and India. Thailand, India, and then England. Well, I mean, that's actually interesting because you kind of do it or did it in reverse as a lot of people are doing it nowadays, you know, where a lot of people are going to, uh, England from like, say like um, an American kid is graduating high school and he's going to England because that's a cool place to go straight yeah. away. And then he realizes like maybe it's a little too expensive for him. So then he makes his way to India or Thailand. Yeah. Did you find yourself landing in Thailand and then going to India and being like, wait, I should just maybe stay here? Uh, India is way too hectic to stay for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, well, no, for me being there was an expat community in London. So I think when I was there, there was 15,000 Australians living in London. Um, You could drink Australian beer, you could hang out with Australians, and you'd get work there easy too. So what I was doing was blowing off the money that I'd saved on the trip through Thailand and India, and then when you get to London, you work. So it's that, we're allowed to work there. I see. So it's that working holiday thing that you do there. Did you actually get to spend a whole year abroad or did you run out of money? Um, no, I never ran out of money. Um, what I did do, what, yeah, back then, the easiest way to buy your ticket, the cheapest way to buy your ticket, you get a, it was a cheap ass round the world flight, but it, it wasn't a real round the world flight. Um, you're allowed to take five flights and you had to keep traveling in the one direction. So I was Thailand, India, London, and then I think I flew, I was supposed to fly into New York and then out of LA and land in New Zealand and then back to Australia. So that was my one year ticket. But, um, I never went to America that time. I ended up coming back. I can't remember why I went back to Australia. Did the bug bite you? Was it something that you fell in love with? Or was it just a year abroad now you're going to go back and get back into banking? Or sorry, you weren't banking anymore. You were a train driver. Um, Oh, I know. I went back and went to university. Oh, no. Yeah, it was not a... Yeah, was it a bug? Um... I suppose when that holiday finished, I didn't go overseas again for 10 years. I know what I was doing. I was looking for somewhere better than Australia to live. That's what I was doing. So I wasn't happy that um, I'd been born in Australia. And, you know, the only reason I was there was because it's where my parents were. And I'm like, there must be something better than this. But um, so, yeah, that was looking for a home. So, um, and what did you discover? Well, I found out that home was better than everywhere else. Really? Why is that? Like, what, what did you discover about home that you hadn't realized when you were there? Well, I, yeah, the only reason I was there was because my parents dragged me there. Um, the physical beauty of it, um, what we had in Australia back then was really nice. Yeah. So it was, I lived on the beach. Um, like I don't, yeah, I don't, everyone's seen Australia. It's really, really pretty. Are you, I mean, hobby wise, are you a surfer? Are you a water, waterman? Or do you have anything that really um, keeps you going on a day to day? Or did you? Well, yeah, living at the beach. Well, everyone in Australia lives on the beach. You'll think we're Outback Jack, the Outback Steakhouse and Crocodile Dundee and all of that. We're the most urbanized nation on earth. 
Um, we live in more cities than everyone else, and we also live really close to that coastline. So most of Australia is empty. There's no one out there. Uh, so, yeah, we're all living on the coast. So living on the coast, I had a go at surfing, but um, the surfing culture didn't really appeal to me. You know, that localism stuff they do and all of that stuff. I didn't mind going down the ocean and jumping in on the surfboard and trying to surf. I wasn't any good at it. But what I didn't mind, what I didn't like was having to tell people to fuck off and throw rocks at them and stuff. I couldn't work out where the beauty of the ocean and being at one with the kahuna, the king of the waves or whatever. I couldn't work out how throwing rocks and calling people cunts was part of that. So, yeah, I didn't really gel with the surfers. But, um, no, I never really had a sport when I was little. So 10 years back, I mean, you, you went you went abroad, go back 10 years. I mean, what happened in that 10-year span before you said it's time to get out again? Oh, I don't know, a bunch of two-year stuff. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you had a little restaurant at some point, didn't you? Hang on, yeah. I was, hang on, I was at uni. Yeah, right. Oh, I went back and I went to uni. What did you study? The history and philosophy of science. Um, but what I thought was going on at uni was... Um, what I thought was going on at uni was this is where the smart people were going. to Not the smart people. This is where people who wanted to go and learn stuff would go and learn stuff. But what I actually found out by the time I got there was we were we used to have free education in Australia. So you're a citizen, you'd go to the uni, and the government would pay for it. Now, the idea was um, it cost the whole country money to provide these places, but what happens is you get an educated population and an educated population makes for a better country. What happened to me when I got there, they decided we had some extra places at uni. So they were selling them to overseas students, and um, which is fair enough. What we have done now has gone the whole gamut and turned into America, where you need bank financing to pay full fees to go to university. Because what the universities did was said, well, we've got these overseas guys paying, you should pay too. So gradually and slowly that crept in. So we went from having free education to having a really shitty system like the States where you end up with a great big debt to a bank mm-hmm. and um, yeah, you're just indebted and you jump on the treadmill and try and pay back the money yeah dude it's real a lot of kids are suffering from that nowadays what did you discover by studying the history of what philosophy and science history and (laughs) philosophy of science wow what did i discover uh okay i discovered that um a university degree had a cost a value i thought it had a value it didn't have a value it actually had a fiscal cost those overseas students that were there with me, they, um, it doesn't matter what country they were from and it doesn't matter what language they spoke. What bothered me was they weren't contributing to the tutorials that we were in. So we're having those two-hour group discussions. When you turn up and say hello, and then two hours later you giggle and say goodbye. I don't think that's a contribution. But my tutor was telling me these people had paid a lot of money, so they were going to get passed. So um, so your degree, the little slip of paper you get at the end, is more of a receipt for your time. It's a receipt for your money. Your money. Yeah. Your time and money. So I decided not to... Um, not to hand in my last component on that course, I managed to fail first-year sociology. I'm the only person I've ever met that has failed first-year sociology. But, uh, yeah, I was quite proud of that. Did you get a degree ever, or you just just dropped out completely? Well, 
this is before I knew I had a two-year retention span. So, um, yeah, my mum said to me, how's uni going? And I went, I meant to tell you I stopped going last year. So I only did, only did two years of it. But what did happen, this is back at the time when um, the USSR fell to bits. So I'd enrolled in a subject to study that was um, oh, Soviet social politics from the revolution to the present. And that was it. But what happened was that all perestroika, glasnost, all of that stuff happened and the USSR, the USSR fell to bits on our summer holiday. So our course didn't work. The title was wrong because it wasn't up to the present. <laughs> and I said to the guy, change the name of the title so it's up to two months ago. And he said, no, we can't do it. So I wasn't doing that. I looked at all the other subjects that were available to me and there was nothing I really wanted to do. So I gave it up. I mean, was it was a two years attention span? I mean, you're piecemealing your life together in so many unique ways, <laughs> you know, where it's like, because again, pre-conversation, we've you've talked about owning a few restaurants, being the restaurant business or cafe business. You traveled a lot more around the world, um, and and you've done a lot of interesting things. You think primarily just because you'll get to that two-year period, and you're just like, ah, over this, <laughs> you know, I'm going to move on. Yeah, yeah, you're either in a rut or you've achieved it. Okay. So um, what have you achieved then, like in your definition of achievements? Well, if you are, well, what did I do? Oh, I, I, the other day, oh, the other day. A few months ago, I was back in Australia and um, I ran into a guy that I hadn't seen for quite a few years. And he was there at, um, he was there, he's explaining to people how he met me and he actually met me at one of my cafes, my little coffee shop thing. And he said to everyone, this is the man who bought curly lettuce to our town. So it was curly lettuce on the hamburger. Um, Explain what that means to the audience, because I don't understand it. Well, it was it was gourmet food. So instead of the greasy takeaway that you'd have, mine was the gourmet food. I had the first blackboard menu in the city. Um, it was the eighties. It was it was all a bit posh and new and. Nothing had ever changed, and we'd just been doing the same thing food-wise for since we were kids. And then, yeah, I changed it up a bit. Left your mark with the curly lettuce. <laughs> well, left my mark on that guy. He remembered it. <laughs> That's cool. And then, I mean, yeah, because you've obviously sold some businesses too and made a little bit of money on some of the sales, so... Um. <clears throat> Yeah, I didn't really do it. What I liked about running my own business was you were the boss um, and you didn't get anything wrong. So, yeah, when you say money, I used to pay my staff, if they were under 18, I'd pay them eight bucks an hour. And if they were over 18, I'd pay them 10 bucks an hour. So they'd work and I'd pay them cash on the spot when they left. At the end of that, I worked out, at the end of that business when I sold it, I sold it for a profit, but I sat down and worked out the hours I'd done and worked out how much I'd earned. I was on two bucks an hour. But being the boss, sitting at the beach, the dolphins were in the waves across there, um, yeah, people would come in and go, can I have a hamburger? And I'd see dolphins swimming in the waves and go, look, dude, I'll be back in 10 minutes. And I'd go over and have a swim, uh, come back and make their burger. So, yeah, sometimes there's more to work and more to life than how much money you make. Totally, I agree. <laughs> it's I mean, about doing what you want, when you want, and life's happy. Definitely kind of how you lived your life, it seems like. Well, yeah, sometimes you're better off earning two bucks an hour. Yeah. You spent some time in Central and South America, too. We've had some conversations about that. 
Um, is there a part of the world, I guess I'm getting at, like, that you find yourself resonating with more? I mean, I know you live and reside now here in Vietnam, but with, with the world experiences that you do have, have you found a place that you say, like, oh, this is kind of the, a place that I connect with the most? Or is it still, like, a two-year kind of attention span where it's like... <laughs> oh, no, here now, this is it. I'm here, around the corner there, the little cemetery... They're not allowed to bury me in the cemetery because I'm not kin, I'm not part of their culture. But they're going to bury me under a tree right beside the cemetery. But uh, that's our agreement at the moment. So um, what they've said here, well, when I say what they've said, I can't speak Vietnamese, so this is what the translators tell me. But they say, yeah, Malti, you spend your whole life here and when you die, we'll bury you beside the cemetery under a tree. So my plan is to be here forever. Because, um, yeah, you've been here, what, nine years now? Ten years? This is my ninth year. Been October nine. will be nine years. So your two years sort of attention span has kept you focused enough or maybe just kept you here in general? Like, <laughs> um, Well, what I did was got married and had a baby. And um, I had a baby before, but yeah, that was when I was 20. And um, me, I got, yeah, I don't know, the stereotypical thing is the deadbeat dad. Mm. So, um, you know, I could also be the father's rights thing and be shouting about that and stuff. Mm. But, yeah, basically you get tarred with the deadbeat dad brush. So I had that with my first son, first child. Um, so he's a 31-year-old man now, but, um, yeah, still I'm the deadbeat dad. No contact whatsoever? No. Um, every time I try, he moves away. Mm. But um, now the, I've got a four-year-old daughter. So, um, yeah, the two-year attention span thing's gone. And you're trying to make, obviously... Uh, uh, be, or be a father figure to your daughter. Well, that's it. That's what I do now. Yeah. So that's what my job is now. I'm a dad. Mm -hmm. I just hang out with her, mm -hmm. which is fun for me and probably not good for her because it makes her a lot like me. <laughs> <laughs> She's horrible. <laughs> but yes, I knew my two-year attention span was all over, so that enabled me to be a parent. So being a parent hasn't forced me to be here. I, I'd changed and it had, um, yes, yeah, so being a parent was easy. I knew I was going to be here forever. So um, it was a little bit easy to have a kid. Was it, I mean, because, yeah, with all the experience you have had, being the parent you think is the most significant one or just happened to be a circumstance that happened to come upon you at a time when you were ready to take on that responsibility? Um, well, I'm Mr. Zero Population Growth. Like, we shouldn't be having any kids or whatever. We should be not saving the planet. We could do things to make life more viable for us. But, um, yeah, I don't care. I've just had a baby and I love playing with her. She's just become, yeah, so she's just become the focus of my life. So now here... I've had experience in tourism here for eight years, so i got guys at the moment that want me to go and train, run their new businesses and train their staff and do all of that stuff. And they're going, you got all this expertise and it's... And they keep throwing bigger and bigger amounts of money at me. And, um, yeah, I just sit here and play dominoes with daughter instead. <laughs> That's so, cool. you know, there's, they could throw me a million dollars. Well, I don't know. I, can't, I was going to say a million dollars a day. A million dong a day. <laughs> well, that's what they're offering me, so I'm not going. <laughs> but, yeah, there's no amount of money that it'd take. I'd rather play with my daughter than go off and pump my ego up mm -hmm. by helping someone make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. One thing I like to do is just so the audience can get a little bit of a perspective on you know, how you make life work for yourself here. I know you have the Pepper House, which is a bed and breakfast kind of style house, really authentic in the in the rice patties. Um, you obviously built it. So is that money that you had from like past businesses that you sold? And 
the lifestyle that you're sustaining right now is just solely from because you're a young man. I mean, you're kind of. I'm fifty too. I'm older than everyone here. <laughs> well, fair enough, but still, like in a lot of people's eyes, you're a young man, and to retire at fifty-two is a lot of Western people's dreams, you know. So, um, just out of curiosity, you don't have to answer if you don't want. But right, I, I retired in nineteen ninety-nine. Um, that was my last tax return in Australia, and um, that's when I considered I retired back. And then. that was from a sale of a business, or. Or just because you, you chose to live in a place that you could afford with Well, that was just, uh, I, well, I was wage earning then. We were sitting around one night smoking weed and everyone's hassling me because I hadn't had a job for a while and they're trying to find the perfect job for me. And I'm like, well, I don't like doing much. I don't like moving much. I don't want to wear a uniform. I don't iron clothes. One of the guys sitting there smoking bongs with us said, oh, I've got the perfect job. You can be a life model for my dad. So he rings up, his, rings up his dad, who's the art teacher, and I'm starting work the next morning. So 9 o'clock the next morning, I turn up. I've got to be... Na- and I'm like, I'm at the art school, and I'm like, ah, this will be okay. I can take my clothes off. No one will see me. I'm big and fat with a small dick. Now, every and so this is why the guy loves me being a model because most of his models are buff. So, the he kids wants curves, he wants the beautiful curves of multi. Well, he just wants he's an artist, he just wants something different. You know, every jacked guy looks like every other jacked guy, and every 40 inch boob looks like every other 40 inch boob. So what they can't do is get ugly people to take their clothes off because they're too scared. So it's the people that know they're pretty that'll take their clothes off. But pretty people all look the same. So I got a whole bunch of work that day when they found out I was a model. So I was working all through the school. But what did, I'm like, it's okay, I can take my clothes off, no one knows me. First class I go to, I'm sitting in the corridor on the floor. Three girls I know turn up. They go, hey, you've joined the art class. I went, oh, kind of. <laughs> so, yeah, they found out I was the model. <laughs> but it is the perfect job. You don't have to wear a uniform and you don't have to move much. Sounds like you get paid a lot too. You got paid really well. But it's really hard. You think sitting around's easy. But it's not, because when you go to, when, usually when you're sitting around, you're fidgeting and moving a little bit and all the rest of it. When you got to sit still, proper still, there is an art form to it. And, um, I was good at it. That's actually really interesting, kind of beautiful and poetic in its own way to be really good at us as a still model. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard not to move. <laughs> How long did you do that for? Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I think I did that until I went overseas again. Right. So it was overseas travel that stopped that job. You think you'll uh, take Ella traveling ever? Um, Ella's your daughter, just so the audience knows who I'm talking about. Yeah, Ella's the four-year-old. Um, okay, we live in Vietnam. I used to take her on holidays here. She'd been to four UNESCO World Heritage Sites for her holidays. So where you go down the road to visit your auntie and that, that's what we're doing. But because we're in Vietnam and it's all beautiful, we're going to UNESCO World Heritage Sites as well. So, yeah, Ella set the bar a bit high for herself with the beautiful places she's been and seen. And her and her mum, we went to Australia as well. So she's also spent some time there. But, um. I mean, is that important for you to like get your daughter out in the world and, and see different cultures? Or are you happy with her kind of growing up in Phong Nha and. Well, I. This? The only reason I took her back there was because I'm from there. And um, I wanted to show her mother that her mother could also go there. So um, Yim always thought of overseas and Australia as being this great, big, exotic, too-hard-to-do-foreign thing. 
But um, now they're both capable of, if they want to go to Australia, they can go by themselves. Mm. I don't particularly want to go back there. What do you like about it here so much? Um, I like everything that they don't like. <laughs> can you explain what that means? <laughs> well, what happens is I twice I left Australia. When I was a nude model, after that, I also, I'm sitting there in Wollongong and I'm thinking, really, this can't be the best place in the world. I'd already worked out it was. I'd spent 10 more years there loving it. So I went to look for somewhere else to live again and um, never found it. Ended up back in Australia. But um, what I like, so Australia's changed a lot. We've just turned into America. Now during, I'll go back to the Russian Revolution. The Russians had a king and a queen and then um, they had a bunch of guys, they went, oh, we're going to get rid of the king and the queen and we're going to make a worker's paradise. So they had this Bolshevik revolution and they didn't think they'd actually win, but they ended up disposing their royal family and ru running the place. Well, they've turned around and said, oh, shit, we've promised people the worker's paradise. What the hell are we going to do? So they looked around the world and they found Australia, and they said, that place is the worker's paradise. We should do that. So um, what they did was actually something completely different and had famines and killed people and all the rest of it. So they went off in another way. But there was an acknowledgement that Australia was a paradise. So that's kind of the place I grew up in. But I watched it change and morph more into America and that, um, that idea of, yeah, it all just changed a bit. Everything got more expensive. Credit became available and everyone just jumped on that work treadmill. And, um, the reward was being able to buy big screen TVs and air conditioners. And um, I actually saw everyone get less happy but have more stuff. So they thought the stuff would make them happy and they're at work to get stuff to make them happy and they're not happy so they're back at work and buying more stuff. So that's kind of what I was happy to leave in Australia. And what I found here was... Um, how it used to be everywhere in the world. We've got a the village we live in is all related, so it's all family. Um, there's a whole bunch of people here just looking out for one another. Everyone just, first of all, you make sure you're okay, but then you make sure everyone else is okay too. So that's family, and they're looking after themselves. They don't look outside to the government to provide them with anything. So um, it's all pretty insular. And um, being in the tourism game, we do get people in here and they go, oh, yeah, my family, we all love one another and we get along at home, so we're just like this. And I go, no, these guys don't all love one another. It doesn't just, you know, it's not like a quirk of fate that they like their family and enjoy their presence. They are family. That's it. That's what you got. It's not about liking them. It's just the way it is. So you don't have to like your sisters, but they are your sisters, and that way you have a role. Mm -hmm. So um, what they're not doing here is playing happy families. It is a family. And it's kind of not. Yeah, there's kind of no bullshit there. It's just like very clear. Yeah. Your role within the system. <laughs> yeah, it's your role within a system. And it, for me, it's a beautiful system. Mm -hmm. Now, for these guys, um, they've all got TVs, so they're watching the media. Oh, they've also got the iPhone things. Um, they're watching a whole bunch of ads, and the whole bunch of ads are telling them, 
buy stuff and you'll be happier. So what we've got here is these people are going from what they've got and they want to go to where we are. So um, you get a whole bunch of them moving away, working in the factories, earning money and buying stuff. So, um, yeah, everyone's trying to be happy. Do you... I mean, you strike me as somebody that is never really that stressed out. Do you have anything that stresses you out? Um, Maybe that noise in the background. The, <laughs> of Vuvuzela. Yeah, my wife, she's Vietnamese. She's all calm, and she wants me to go out and kill that cousin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you said, they're related, so that is a relative of yours now, an in-law. It'd be a cousin. Everyone's a cousin. Um, stress. I don't know. I. It's funny that you say I don't have any stress because in Australia I was um, I was on the Prozacs and all of that. I had. I think I'll go back on Prozac now. <laughs> so you have. That's why you have your rice wines. Um, well, no, over in Australia, I had non-specific anxiety disorders and I was on medication for it. Um, so I came to Vietnam and when you're here, because I don't speak Vietnamese, I can't tell anyone I've got non-specific anxiety disorder. So, um... No one treats me like I've got non-specific anxiety disorder. And it kind of went away. That's really interesting. But it's also a different environment. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, at home you get the label. Mm -hmm. It was home that made it happen to me, that whole horrible thing that I think Australia's become. Um, It was that that made me sick but also when you get that label everyone treats you like that and you get your medication and then if you don't take your meds you get in trouble for not taking your meds and all of that stuff's going on so when I got here um, yeah they don't do mental illness here it just doesn't exist um yeah, it's interesting. I've actually had conversations with other people about this. I know you're a self-described immigrant, not an expat, so I won't use that term to describe <laughs> Yes, but you said brats and something else. I'm okay with the title of the podcast. That's okay. what I am. Um, but yeah, that warm blanket, I think that we all get wrapped in through the sheer lack of understanding of cultural norms and sort of mores. And some people really thrive on learning these things. Other people are very casual about it, like you, like me, or just like accepting the environment for what it is and not necessarily needing to inundate ourselves within every aspect of their culture. And I think that is in many ways a therapy, you know, like because you don't, they might be labeling you. You actually don't know because you don't understand the language. They might be judging you at every single turn, but you don't know and you don't care. It's pretty mellow. It's pretty cool. Well, that's the, that's the beauty of not speaking the language. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I walk around here. i got a big fat gut and a big head. So they're all making the sign that you and I would think, hey, look at that guy with the big head and the fat gut. But I'm walking around here going, hey, look at those guys. They're over there going, and I, I wish I could be multi. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just ignore it. It's there. They're judging me. Um I got a big head. I'm twice as tall as everyone. I got a big fat gut. Um, so yeah, they're saying like, what the hell do you eat to make you that fat? Um, you know, has he eaten a thousand mice or one elephant? They're saying all those sorts of things, but, um, it's nice not speaking the language. I just ignore it all. Mm. It's kind of easy. What's your daily routine like? What do you do on a daily year? Um, well, I sleep in. They get it. Here they're farmers, so they're off to bed with the sun and they're up with the light. So, yeah, it's really early in the morning they wake up. But I spend, I do screen time 
at night time. So screen time? Screen oh. time. So I'm on the computer. So I stay up later than everyone. So what happens here is my daughter goes to school at about 7 o'clock. I say about 7 o'clock because I'm in bed asleep. So when I was sleeping to their times and waking up and she was going to school, I'd just sit around all day waiting for her to come home from school. So I stay up later at night, wake up about 10 o'clock, and then, um, at, yeah, by the time I have breakfast or lunch or a coffee or whatever, it's 4 o'clock and I go and pick her up from school and off we go and play. But... It's not Groundhog Day. I also do heaps of other stuff. <laughs> Fair enough. But it sounds pretty, you know, romantic in a lot of ways where... But that is so... Well, I said I'm, you know, a parent. So that's my parenting thing. So my role is to be a dad, whatever. Um, that's my main job. So, yeah, that's my main requirement, going and getting Ella. Um, I'm playing with her. But when I play with her, we're in the village here. She's playing with everyone. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here that's just amazing. Um, it's also nice. We don't have any soft play. We don't wear helmets when we're on bicycles. We don't have any of that shit going on. Um, they're just out there doing it. And it can be confronting for the Westerners when they get here. Um, it's all just a bit loose here. But we never used to be so uptight at home. So back in the 70s, it was just like this. Everything was okay at home. Maybe in 40 years' time, these guys will be as uptight as we are now. Mm-hmm. I hope. Well, I don't care. I won't be here in 40 years. Right. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful life, man. Two questions. Two more questions before we wrap up. How can you describe to the audience how you got the name Multi? Because that's not your birth name. <laughs> that's not my birth name. Right. Everyone knows Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan's the martial arts guy from Hong Kong and stuff. So when Jackie Chan's a little guy, he was a backpack. This is a convoluted story, but a good one. So Jackie Chan's a little backpacker or whatever. He's going off to make his fortune or make his life. So he ends up in Sydney, Australia, one of the most racist places on earth. Now, um, he's in King's Cross at a building site and he's trying to get a job as a labourer. So he turns up in the morning ready to sign on at the building site and the Aussie says to him, okay, what's your name? And he says, Chan. And the Aussie guy goes, okay, Jackie Chan. And that's how Jackie Chan got his name, because an Australian couldn't pronounce his name. So when I got here to Vietnam, they were all told my name, but uh, every other white person they'd ever met had left two days later. So I'm here, I'd been here about six weeks, and my Vietnamese mate, one night she goes, she talks, this is how she talks, she's got an Aussie accent. She goes, ah, fuck, I haven't registered you with the police. When you stay here, you need to be registered with the police. So when you're in a hotel, they'll put you on the police register. It's okay. If you're in a private home, the police are supposed to know about it. So um, Bic, that's the lady's name, she gives her brother my passport and a bottle of rice wine. Now, it's not rice wine like sake. This is um, moonshine. So he takes a bottle of moonshine and my passport and goes round to the local copper's house. They get around there and he says, hey, look, I need to register the Australian. So they sit down and start drinking the rice wine. They're blind drunk. Brother says, I'm going home. The policeman says to him, oh, no, 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 we've got to do the paperwork. So he pulls out an A4 piece of paper. It's bilingual. It's in Vietnamese and English, foreigner registration form. They open up the passport. 
the policeman's at what's his name? He's like, I don't know. He's turned up and his name's Ching Chong, Ching Chong, Ching Chong, Chan. I don't know, something. So they open it up and they go, they get to the photo. That's him. The copper knows me. He'd had a run in with me already. Yeah, 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 that's him. What's his name? They can't tell. They keep flipping through the passport and they get to the page with the Vietnamese visa on it. So this form's got uh, foreigner registration, full name. So on the visa, capital letters, multiple entries. So they put my name down as Mr. Multiple Entries. The next line is preferred name. So I put down multi, M-U-L-T-I. <laughs> um, brother comes home with the paperwork. He's quite happy. He's all drunk. It's only cost $10 for me to be here for six months. Hands it over to his sister. She gets it, starts reading it, pisses herself laughing. And um, since that day, I've been multi. Nine years, multi. <laughs> which is a great name, by the way. <laughs> Thank you really nice very name. much. Um, second question is, has anyone ever asked you for advice before? Said, come to you, said, multi, you are a man who's been here a long time, or you're a man of many years and a lot of wisdom. Is there some kind of wisdom you can impart on me if I want to live the life that you're living? What could you tell the audience? Well, hang on. Usually I just spout shit at them before they, yeah. Normally I'm just shouting at people and telling, I talk over the top of everyone. So normally they don't get a chance to ask me anything before I talk over the top of them. But, um, yes, the other day I was asked, but I'm not sure of the answer I gave them. <laughs> One of my friends wanted a job and, um, she said, you should give me a job. I went, why? She said, because I want to be like you. I think that was her asking for my wisdom. Flattering. If there was somebody that is listening that says, this guy's living it right, this guy has got the, the key to the castle, the answer to all the questions, what would you say to him? How, how could they get started on this path in life? Uh, right, oh. Do what you want to do. I've read this somewhere. Everything I ever know, I've stolen off someone. The only idea I've ever come up with on my own is the double plug of thongs. Now, I'm showing Chapin, but what happens with your flip-flops is there's only one plug and they fall out. So Aussies wear double pluggers. Now, at the front of the flip-flops, there's still only one plug. So they break there. So the only idea I've had on earth is to put two plugs at the front of it so they don't break. Fuck yeah, brother. So that's the only thing I've ever come up with. But the one that I did read about recently was um, you've got to pretend that everything's accounted for. All your bills, your house, your mortgage, your food, your ex-wife payment things. So when all of that's done and all of it's accounted for, what would you do with your time? You should just do that anyway. Do that with your time and that'll make your life better. So... I think that's how it works. Pretend your life's perfect, pretend everything's paid for, and just do what you want. Beautifully said. Thank you for your time, dude. Cheers, Mike. Awesome, Multi. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story with us. You are a man of amazing style and truly unique character. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. I appreciate you and look forward to chatting with you again on my next visit to Feng Ya. Thank you again for listening. Please head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and grab a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt. I would love it if you would send me a photo of you wearing your shirt so I could put up on my Instagram account. I love seeing the faces of all you beautiful Misfits and Rejects out there. You know I truly love you all. Thank you for listening. I think you all are so very, very beautiful. 
I hope Multi's story and all these stories I'm capturing inspire you to think about your life situation and you know take that first step into the unknown, into maybe that thing that you've always been afraid of, but you connect with somebody's story, and if they can do it, so can you. That's a fact. And get ready for next week. we got some amazing episodes coming out of Fungya again, and I'll see you next week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.